Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. Meg Terrell is off this week. It's Thursday, June 3rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Anthony Fauci's emails. Not just any emails, but thousands of messages written by Fauci over the first few months of the pandemic were made public this week. Our stat colleague Nick Florco has read really an alarming amount of them, and he will join us to discuss. Marilyn Marchione, uh, the chief medical writer for the Associated Press for nearly 20 years, retired last week. We could not let Marilyn escape to the beach before chatting with us about her amazing career in health and medical journalism. And we'll start with some quick takes on This Week in Biotech, but first a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. With all eyes on the 2021 ASCO annual meeting, we're seeing tremendous advances in cancer research. I'm here with Charles Fuchs, head of oncology product development at Genentech, to ask some of the bigger questions about these advances. Thanks, Angus. At Genentech, we're asking questions like, how can we ensure that all patients benefit from medical innovation? Just look at the ASCO data this year. A lot of progress has been made in personalized care that allows us to better understand diseases and develop targeted treatments so more patients have more options. As a biotech company, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to help extend and improve the lives of all patients. Join us in asking bigger questions at gene.com forward slash ask bigger questions. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash ask bigger questions. So Damien, I think you had a really interesting take this week on kind of reading the the FDA tea leaves of drug approvability. Well, thank you. That's nice of you to say. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, we are basically on the eve of what is expected to be this momentous decision by the FDA on aducanumab, the controversial Alzheimer's disease treatment from Biogen. And because there isn't really much to do in terms of trying to predict that decision, there isn't much information to pick apart. I think people, you know, resort to, to what we all would, which is maybe not quite tinfoil hat, but but we look at whatever evidence there is and try to construct a take. And so for months, I think there's been this focus, especially in the investor community, on parsing each individual FDA decision for clues as to some sort of like meta take on how the agency is thinking about new drugs. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's this idea, right, uh, Damien, like, you know, is the FDA being more conservative with drug approvals? Is it being more flexible with drug approvals? Right. And it has come to feel a little bit absurd. So if there's a run of, you know, as there were a few months ago, surprising decisions, whether it be uh, drug rejections or, you know, advisory committee hearings called where they weren't previously expected, then suddenly the vibe is, oh, well, they're really cracking down. And then recently we had two uh, drug approvals in consecutive weeks that came through, let's say, favorably to the drug companies and sort of undramatically. And so then the vibe is, ah, so the FDA, in fact, they've kind of taken their foot off the brake when it comes to this. And I think, you know, everybody probably knows this, but the FDA is comprised of thousands of people. Um, and even the drug review arm is separated into individual fiefdoms focused on you know different aspects of biology and science and types of drugs, etc. And each one has its own internal politics. Each one has its own you know personnel changes and its own kind of regulatory philosophy. It's different between cancer than it is from neuroscience, for example. And so I guess you know the, it's one of those things where reading these tea leaves has kind of maybe run out of. 
uh, <laughs> clues to offer us. And, and maybe we should all just kind of respect that it's a giant organization and, and we are on the outside of it. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess, you know, the take here or, or, you know, the thought, and it's a good one, is that, you know, this this decision, this momentous, you know, hugely consequential decision on Adikatamab that is coming, you know, is really not going to be an indictment on the FDA's thinking about drug approvals, you know, at large, right? You know, this is about Adikatamab, it's about neuroscience, but it really doesn't mean anything about cancer drugs, for instance. Most likely, or at least that's what I'm sticking with for now. And I, you know, very well could be wrong. We can have an entirely different take next week. Exactly. So, Adam, what were you uh, thinking about this week? Well, you know, um, one of the big kind of sentiment plays in biotech is obviously M&A. You know, whenever a big takeover deal happens, you know, everyone kind of starts buzzing around. And so we did have one this week, and it was a, you know, modestly sized $1.7 billion deal. Uh, this German drug maker called Morphosis is buying a smaller biotech here based, you know, based here in Cambridge, actually, uh, Constellation Pharma. But, you know, it was one of those deals where instead of people getting really excited about it, um, it was one of those, it was one of those kind of deals where I think like both sides were dissatisfied. Um, you know, the Morphosis people, well, obviously, you know, they were kind of looking at it as maybe a little bit risky. Um, there was a sort of a convoluted financing plan that went along with it that I'm not going to get into here. But, uh, you know, the stock, Morvis's stock was down, you know, and that's not that's not so unusual to see when the acquire the acquiring company, you know, stock goes down. But I think on the Constellation side, what's interesting is that you know, there are a lot of people who are in Constellation. They have this drug for myelofibrosis it's in phase three. People are kind of excited about it. And, you know, when you talk to investors, they thought that, you know, this drug gets approved, you know, it could, it could do reasonably well and that Constellation was probably worth a lot more. You know, they ended up selling the company for $34 per share, which is a pretty low price. Um, you know, as somebody noted on Twitter, uh, the company just last June did a financing deal. They raised money at $35 per share. So here they are selling the entire company at at, a, at $34 a share, less than what they had raised money at, you know, basically a year ago. Um, that doesn't make investors very happy. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, as you mentioned, that it was this sentiment downer, because it kind of seemed when you zoom out like a little bit of a marriage of convenience. As you mentioned, it's Constellation selling itself for less than it was valued, I think as recently as February. And then Morphosis, which I thought was Morphosis, but I, I've demonstrated that I can't pronounce German biotech company <laughs> names, so I will defer to you. Um, but likewise for them, you mentioned that complicated financing deal, which I also don't want to explain, but, but basically they sold the rights they own to an approved drug and a few other drugs that may yet win approval to Royalty Pharma in exchange for the cash to get this deal done. So it kind of is seems like two players not exactly dealing from positions of strength, and then, you know, like I said, kind of a marriage of convenience. And it's pretty unfair to say, like, what does it mean for biotech when it's just a given deal and whatever? But to your point, if you do extrapolate what does it mean for biotech, it doesn't seem altogether positive. Yeah, this, you know, usually M&A, like I said, usually M&A deals get uh, biotech investors and get the entire sector really excited and buzzed. This uh, deal was not one of those, right? This is not going to be the thing that kind of sets people's uh, pants on fire and gets everyone thinking that uh, biotech is moving forward again. Uh, we'll have to wait for another billion dollar plus deal for that to happen. This week, thanks to the Freedom of Information Act and some enterprising reporters at BuzzFeed News and The Washington Post, the world was treated to thousands and thousands of emails sent by Anthony Fauci between January and June 2020. 
Yeah, most of those emails were pretty banal. Uh, a few were quite funny, and some actually shed light on the U.S. government's action and inaction in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining us to talk about it is a man who has spent a somewhat alarming amount of time reading Fauci's emails, and that is Stats Washington correspondent Nick Florco. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys, and thanks for giving me an excuse to read all the emails. <laughs> well, like you needed an excuse. <laughs> so we'll get to maybe some of the more amusing aspects of it. But I was curious, Nick, just like on the whole, this big document dump, are there any kind of news or policy implications of it? I mean, as you scrolled through, did it kind of change your conceptualization of, of how, how Fauci did his job in the early days of the pandemic? I mean, honestly, it, it probably gives credence to the fact that he was kind of working 24-7. I mean, it's it's sort of crazy how many emails this man receives and sends. And and quite frankly, a lot of the policy-focused emails sort of leave us wanting more. But they, for someone like me who is really uh, intrigued by palace intrigue, I guess, uh, some of the emails you just really wish you knew what, what Fauci was thinking. I mean, one, for example, he forwards this email that's a news article about early positive clinical trial results for, for Gilead's remdesivir. And he sends it to a redacted email, and his only response is, geez, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> And you just have to wonder what he's thinking. That, that email was not sent to me. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. <laughs> and you, you do get a lot of an inside look at, at sort of famous people trying to hobnob with Tony Fauci. I mean, folks like Mark Zuckerberg. And we see a plethora of companies trying to pitch Fauci. And you even get an email from a representative for Bob Langer who Fauci describes to his deputy as, quote, somewhat of an inventive genius. Um, but overall, I mean, we just get a really vivid look at the crazy email habits of, of Tony Fauci. So uh, as Damien mentioned, you know, these emails are all being unearthed or made public because of a FOIA request. Um, government officials, I guess, know that their email can be FOIA'd. So I wonder, do Tony Fauci's emails read like a person who knows that eventually his emails are going to be public? I mean, maybe. Uh, he's been at the job for so long that he, he probably uh, can sort of do it without making it seem too obvious. I mean, he doesn't say a lot via email. And, and quite honestly, the Freedom of Information Act uh, does some government officials favors. I mean, there's certain emails where you can sort of tell things maybe were a little testy, um, but the emails are totally redacted. So really, <laughs> for someone like me reading these emails, you sort of have to enjoy the funny ones that they let you have. I mean, my biggest takeaway, honestly, is that this man needs to stop being so nice to people. I mean, he replies to everyone. I mean, literally, someone who identified themselves as one of his former med school colleagues forwarded him their blog saying that Joe Biden should name Fauci his vice president. And Fauci replies on a Sunday at 11 p.m., no less, thanking the guy. So, you know, <laughs> those are the sort of emails that we get unredacted. And then the emails that are, you know, big policy discussions between the big wigs about big things, they're they're totally redacted, unfortunately. I think part of what people were fishing for, perhaps, or at least looking for upon reviewing the emails was evidence that, you know, he had criticized President Trump in, in emails or evidence of strife within the coronavirus task force or that, you know, if you recall, um, there was a, a report, I think, in the early days of the pandemic that he was being muzzled or censored. And actually, it was striking to me how in, in among Fauci's many, many replies, he seemed to be willing to reply to almost anyone making that suggestion to say, I am not being muzzled. I am not being censored. 100 percent. Yeah, that that was kind of telling in its own right, right? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, he made a lot of effort to tell, I mean, regular people that he was not being censored. But then you saw people like Zeke Emanuel, too, you know, bringing this up. 
and it was clear that this was on everybody's mind. People were trying to get some info out of Tony Fauci, and he wasn't giving much besides, hey, I'm not being muzzled. I'm talking at all of the press briefings, et cetera, et cetera. And there aren't any emails to suggest you know, people saying you're not going to be at this briefing because you're not allowed to speak. I mean, that is that smoking gun is is very much not there. So the, what about the real burning questions? Like, how does Tony Fauci sign off on his emails? Does he use best sincerely? Like, how, how do those emails end? He often just writes A.S. Fauci. His emails are very, very short. A lot of smiley face emoticons, though, which I appreciate. Yeah, a lot of smiley faces. So, Nick, you've poured through thousands of these Fauci emails uh, and you've come up with like a top five list of like, it's your favorite, uh, your favorite Fauci emails. Is that right? They're all fun. Some of them are a little policy focused, but they're all fun. All right. So let's go. Let's start. Let's start with number five. All right. Are you going to be my Paul Shaver? I'll do that. Uh, I'll play play that role. I've got, I've got uh, just about as much hair as Paul. So we'll do that. Let's do it. All right. Number five. I'm calling this one careful what you wish for. So in April of last year, Fauci, who's a huge Washington Nationals fan, shared on email with a colleague that he thought he might be invited to throw out the first pitch at a Nats game next year. Well, a few months later, Fauci got his wish on opening day, no less. But there was one problem. Fauci threw a wicked curveball that made it halfway to first base. And it's a pitch that his former boss, President Trump, still periodically reminds Fauci was one of the (laughs) worst first pitches in history. That's right up there. I remember I remember seeing videos of that pitch. That was that's that's it was pretty I mean it was hard to do what he did with the baseball, I think. It didn't quite match 50 cent, <laughs> but it was close. All right, number 4. All right, number 4, keeping with the baseball theme, I'm calling this one who's on first. So, this is one of the policy focused ones. Uh, but it's pretty comical. So Fauci's emails do give us an inside look at some of the early days of the vaccine development effort known as Operation Warp Speed. And it's pretty apparent that even Tony Fauci, who was on the COVID task force, and his boss, Francis Collins, the head of NIH, were left out in the cold sort of more than once. There's this one great email exchange where Bob Cadlick, who's a top deputy at Department of Health and Human Services, shares with a large group via email that Secretary Azar has endorsed the recommendations for a vaccine portfolio. And clearly Fauci and Collins had no idea such a big call was happening because Collins emails Fauci a few hours later and says, huh? (laughs) And then Fauci chimes in at 3 a.m., no less, and emails the group saying, what is going on here? Uh, And it's not the only instance where Fauci, who has been everyone's go-to source for COVID news, seemed in the dark, quite honestly. I mean, FDA's Peter Marks reached out to the two of them, Collins and Fauci, less than a week before the Project Warp Speed project made the press to brief them on the program. And if there was any doubt that Fauci or Collins were clued in already, Mark starts the email with, I know that you have heard murmurings of Project Warp Speed. So if you were confused in the early days of the vaccine development effort, you weren't the only one. It looks like Fauci and Collins were confused sometimes, too. See, this makes me feel better because who among us have not sent an email to colleagues saying, what the hell is going on? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Number three. All right. Number three. This one I'm calling Francis Collins and Tony Fauci. They're just like us. So this one was really popular on Twitter when I shared it. Tony Fauci, Francis Collins and their friend and colleague Larry Corey apparently were shopping around a paper on, quote, a strategic approach to vaccine development back in April. And it was unceremoniously denied by the New England Journal. And all three of them were left surprised and strategizing on what other journal they could pitch. And some folks on Twitter pointed out that Collins and Fauci didn't even get a personalized email about the rejection. (laughs) They got the same batch email as everyone else. So I'm proposing an addition to that bulk email. New England Journal, if you're listening, don't bother telling people how the submission was carefully considered by the editorial team. Just tell them, don't worry. We even deny Francis Collins and Tony Fauci sometimes. Oh, man, that's that's tough. Uh, Number two. All right. Number two. I'm calling this one another one in the chaos folder. Uh, So this is actually for readouts resident basketball fan, Damien. 
Apparently, Tony Fauci needs to be careful who he gives advice to. When the NCAA was thinking about canceling their March Madness tournament last year, Tony Fauci apparently spoke to two members of the NCAA advisory panel, and that conversation made its way to ESPN, who came knocking, asking to confirm that, that Fauci actually told the NCAA that he believed wholeheartedly they should cancel the tournament and that other sports should do the same. Of course, the NCAA did cancel the tournament, and it was almost certainly the right call, but you can't help but laugh at the email from Fauci's assistant, who forwarded him the request and in all caps just wrote, please advise. <laughs> Fauci, by the way, claimed he never said it should be canceled and there shouldn't be spectator, but just that there shouldn't be spectators, and that he said that other sports shouldn't do the same. Okay, producer Teresa Gaffney, give me a drum roll, please. And here we are with the number one, most fascinating, most excellent, really super cool Tony Fauci email per Nick Florco. This one I'm calling the creepiest professional email I have ever read. So we know from Tony Fauci's emails that he did not enjoy his celebrity status. I mean, he frequently forwarded emails about all the new Tony Fauci swag, like the socks, with comments like, hopefully this all stops soon and our society is really totally nuts. But no email compares to the one sent from David Bradley, who's the chairman of The Atlantic, who forwarded Fauci an email that ran in his magazine with the title, America is Thirsty for Tony Fauci, which is creepy <laughs> enough, but it gets better. Bradley's reason for sending it, he writes in the email that someday your children, your grandchildren and their children will want to read this. <laughs> Fauci clearly was creeped out. He forwarded the email to an email address that was redacted, and his only response was, David Bradley is the chairman of The Atlantic. Jeez. Oh, wow. Well, Nick, thank you for dedicating so much of your time and your life to, to this pressing matter of these emails, and thank you for sharing the results of that with us today. Thank you for giving me the excuse not to do any work. Hi there, I'm Pat Skerritt, host of the First Opinion Podcast, a cousin to Stats, the Read Out Loud podcast. Each week, I talk to biotech experts, healthcare workers, and regular folks about the issues that are shaping science and medicine. I've hosted a debate between a physician and a philosopher about long COVID. Diane, I can hear you shaking your head here. I, I just want to suggest that you're saying opposing things. Trace the paths of infectious disease and war with a medical historian. They would take some of the pus and the scabs from people who had active cases of smallpox, put them in little envelopes and mail them to their fellow surgeons. So, so you actually sometimes find in Civil War letters, smallpox scabs. And if that happens, you should call the CDC. And come face to face with the systemic issues of sexism and racism that plague the country's healthcare system. We could go through hundreds of names and still not even tick off all of those who have been victims of state-sanctioned violence. Um, so why now? You can find the First Opinion podcast wherever you find the Read Out Loud. New episodes are released every Wednesday morning. So as I mentioned at the top of the show, Marilyn Marchione, who was AP's chief medical writer, announced her retirement last week. You know, it's really hard to think of any uh, like significant breakthrough in health or medicine over the past two decades that Marilyn has not reported on with clarity, compassion, and a keen eye for detail. And, you know, we felt like it was a great time to bring her on the podcast and kind of talk about her career. Um, Marilyn, welcome to uh, The Read Out Loud. Hi. Well, thanks very much. Glad to be here. So obviously we want to talk about some of the, you know, the milestones that you've 
covered over your career, but I was curious, you know, from the outset, how does one decide to retire? Why, why now? Oh, wow. That's a really hard question. I, I don't think it's ever easy to leave a job like mine. I've um, honestly never been one of those people that woke up and thought, oh, how long till I can retire? It's just been a job I've loved. But it has been 45 years of full-time reporting work for me. And it's it's just time to do some different things in life. And um, I felt as if the pandemic had gotten to a point where it was going to be okay to step back and um, let that let that coverage go on without me. So it just seemed like the right time for everyone. As you look back over over your career, are there stories, things that you've reported on that kind of stand out above above the rest? Well, I actually thought that breaking the news of the Chinese babies who were gene edited, the first gene edited babies in the world was going to kind of be the high point of my career. And then along came the pandemic. So those two things bookended the last couple of years of my life. And I think they were both enormously challenging stories from different different reasons, different perspectives. And those will always stand out to me as probably the hardest work that I've done, but also the most satisfying. Well, and for people listening who who may recall the, the CRISPR baby situation, you know, Marilyn, you knew the name He Jiankui long before any of us. That was a story that, that you were working on as, um, if I'm not mistaken, sort of as that uh, experiment was unfolding. How did you come upon that? And what was it like reporting this thing that, as you mentioned, you know, you, you kind of knew from the start was going to be this massive story? Well, it's funny you say that, knew his name for a long time. Actually, I didn't know his identity for the first several months after I heard that someone was trying to make gene-edited babies or that a, a pregnancy was underway. It it really grew out of previous reporting. I had done an awful lot of um, genetic medicine stories in the last few years, had written previously about the first human to have a gene editing tool tried inside his body. It was a different tool, not CRISPR, zinc fingers. But that just one thing led to another. And I think all through my career, I've just kind of built on previous stories. But we didn't know um, JK as a scientist is kind of known by Heijun Kuei. We didn't know his identity for months after I first was tipped to the story. And really, a lot of the key details came later. And the biggest concern with that, of course, was just making sure or trying to determine if it was a hoax because it was an extraordinary claim, requires extraordinary evidence, and we really didn't have that for a very long time. So, the, you know, the CRISPR baby story, you know, that's one of, uh, you know, the combined, you know, kind of groundbreaking science, but also like really tricky ethical issues. And I wonder how you think about that, you know, both over the course of that reporting and, and any reporting you do, how, how you sort of balance those kinds of issues that come up in your in your reporting. I think those are inseparable, ethics and science. They really increasingly, as these technologies get employed and people push the boundaries of what it's possible to do. I think increasingly we have to ask, should it be done? And look at all the ramifications, even cancer medicines that are very, very expensive. There's a lot of questioning now that I think it's incumbent upon all of us to do about value and thinking through equity issues, access to care. There's there's really nothing in medicine now that doesn't involve ethical issues, perhaps never, ever did. They're just a little different now. So I was curious, maybe zooming out or, or rather backtracking to, to the onset of your career, did you choose to focus on, on science and medical journalism or is it something you kind of fell into or did it choose you? A little bit of both. I initially was a science major in college, thought I wanted to do that. Um, then I just was kind of directed, helped into the School of Journalism and 
Uh, I think around when my daughter was about six months old or so, she got very, very sick. No one could figure out what was the matter with her. And I think you quickly go from reading sort of parenting type articles into the medical literature quickly. And I became hooked and I had been doing sort of public affairs reporting before that. But after that, all I could think of was that nothing is more important than somebody's health. And when you have someone who's sick or a loved one is sick, nothing else in the world matters. So I wanted to write about things that really mattered. And it just seemed to marry my um, inclination towards science anyway, and, and my interest in writing. So that gave me the opportunities. And now that daughter is a grown surgeon, so wow. I think it worked out for everyone. So, when I think of some of my favorite stories of yours, I, I do kind of always think about how you explain science in, in a way that anyone can understand it. You know, you sort of bring the patient perspective to, to stories. Is that something that it, it was a priority for you? Most definitely a priority, especially at the Associated Press, because we have such a wide audience. I mean, half the world sees an AP story every day, and I like to read a story and fill smart when I'm done. I don't like someone to be trying to impress me with big words and language. So I always look for those quarter words, try to knock them down to nickel or dime ones. Um, just look at, I, I want people to feel very comfortable and uh, relaxed when they're reading my stories. And I, I do try for that. You mentioned how so much of your career has been, you know, stories building upon one another and, and there being kind of this like saga that you can chronicle in different points in science. And I was curious, you know, Thus, when when you retire, you you kind of cut that off. So one thing that you've covered quite a bit is, I mean, the field of Alzheimer's, the quest to develop new drugs for it, and then you know most presently, uh, the biogen drug aducanumab, which we will apparently find out a decision on from the FDA in the coming days. And so I'm curious, you know, how does it feel, kind of knowing that that you're sort of stepping away right as some of these things are still playing out? Is there a frustration there? Are you going to armchair quarterback those of us who end up covering <laughs> that when the news comes out? Oh, I don't think any of you need any coaching at all. You folks do a fine job reporting on that drug and um, other Alzheimer's developments. And you know what, AP, we have a team. I'm I'm one person, but we do have a team of excellent people. And I've left material. I've left help. I'm leaving people who are really ready to handle it. Um, I'll be very anxious to see what the decision is like everyone else. I can't really think of a more momentous decision in, in many, many decades at the FDA. I think either way it goes, it will affect a lot of people, whether they have Alzheimer's or not, especially if, if there is some sort of approval, the financial ramifications will be huge for Medicare. So uh, there are plenty of good people ready to carry on that work. And um, no one is an island and AP is full of good people. So I'd be very happy to see them do this. So Marilyn, what's next? What are you going to do? Um, well, I'm going to enjoy life for a little bit. Catch, that was good for you. Catching up on my sleep. Um, been doing wonderful things like talking with you and uh, other professionals. So um, just going to kind of give myself a chance to take a breath. It was really a huge thing to to step back from a career like that. And I'm just going to spend time with the family, have some big travels planned. Looking forward to it, though. Well, Marilyn, thank you for all your work over those many years. And thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. And thanks to all the people who helped me do this job. Yeah, Marilyn, big congratulations and you know, obviously deep respect from all of us at STAT uh, you know, for your career. It's, it's been wonderful and wonderful to read your stories. Thank you. It means a great deal coming from you folks. You do a wonderful job and um, very proud of STAT and to be a part of it. Thanks. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. 
And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and what was your favorite Tony Fauci email. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.